Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. The story you're about to hear is a true birth story. It's the real deal, and it may not be appropriate for sensitive ears. On today's episode, you look at that face, and he looked like a complete stranger, but also so familiar at the same time. Because, you know, you, you can't even picture what they're like. You see a black and white ultrasound, and then these little eyes are staring at you. It's like, oh, it's you. Hi, you guys. It's Christy. I'm back. Welcome to season two of The Birth Podcast. I'm so, so excited to be back. My guest today is anonymous. She is the mother of two beautiful young children, and her own birth experience actually has led her to a new career in birth education. So she is especially good at giving us all the details. She's a great communicator. I know you're going to love her. In this episode, we talk about some new surprise symptoms that we haven't heard of before in this show. Carpal tunnel during pregnancy, Bell's palsy. Have you heard of that? Just wait for this one. C-sections, VBACs, switching healthcare providers, standing up for yourself, educating yourself, midwifery care, and something that's really, really great that she shared are essential questions that you should ask a doula before hiring them. I loved her insight on that specifically because it's one of those things where you're just like, how do I choose the right one? And how do I know that they're the right fit for me? And it's a good chat. Now I've been away for a little bit and I know some of you mamas that listen to my show are getting ready to give birth really soon. I want to encourage you when you go into labor to get what you need. Okay. Giving birth is not the time to be nice. If you need or want something, speak up. You will not hurt your nurse's feelings or your midwife's feelings. They have heard it all before. This is their job. They're used to it. You're not going to hurt their feelings. Okay? The act of birth is primal and natural and good. And it's also vulnerable and sometimes scary, especially if it's your first time. Okay, so I want to encourage you to lean in, lean into your most primal, inner, brave warrior woman and be your own best advocate. Listen to your instincts. And remember that over 108 billion other human births have happened in the history of the world. What you're going through is natural and good. We have the technology to help you with your pain if you want it, whatever you need to help you through this moment. It's not weakness. It's the luxury of living in a moment of history that provides you with options. So ask for help. Yell if you want to. Leave the good girl outside and focus in on your own needs and the beautiful act that you are doing by giving life to another person. You are an amazing human being. You're giving life to another person. So get what you need. Insist upon it. Get what you need. That's it. That's my little pep talk. And now let's jump right into this interview. 
Okay. So, oh my gosh, we have so much to cover. You have two kids. Did you always know you wanted to be a mother? And when you got pregnant for the first time, did you feel like you were prepared for that? And tell me about sort of that journey of becoming a mom, you know, the conception. Yeah. I kind of always did know that I wanted to be a mom and I'm kind of on the tail end of my friends having kids. So I got to watch all of them getting pregnant and having kids and, Mm -hmm. and wanting that. My husband and I decided that we were going to get married. I had to finish up school. I was in grad school at the time. And then after that, I think we were both kind of scared a little bit. Mm -hmm. And so I finally just looked at him and I said, look, let's make it New Year's. After New Year's, we'll kind of start trying but not trying and and see what happens. And it actually took on the first try. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And for a while, I didn't share that with people because I knew so many friends that really, really struggled. Mm -hmm. So I I don't take that for granted. Yeah. It was a a great experience. But I think we were both kind of shocked that it took right away. And then I mean, I have two kids, so I'm, I can kind of flip flop back and forth a little bit between them. But when we decided that we wanted a second kid, we kind of did the whole, well, let's try, not try and see what happens again. And it took again way sooner than we thought it did. Mm. So, so the second one kind of surprised us a little bit too. Yeah. It's so crazy because yep. it depends on the timing and the, you know, the couple and oof, it's crazy. So how did your first pregnancy go? It went pretty well. I know I listened to your story and and the morning sickness really was crazy, but I was kind of fortunate. I just had like that that feeling of having a hangover all day. Mm. I never really got really sick. But one thing that I did have that since I've learned it's kind of a common symptom is um, carpal tunnel. Oh, wow. And yeah, I got that in my second trimester with both kids and it was really, really bad. Oh my goodness. I haven't really heard of that as a pregnancy symptom. So I'm glad you brought that up as something that's common. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, I work at a desk job, so odds are I might've gotten it anyway, but I think with swelling that happens with pregnancy, I think it made it happen way sooner. Right. Um, Right. Yeah. And it was like painful all the way up your arm. Ooh. Oh yeah. That doesn't sound fun at all. It's like there's so many things with pregnancy, right? It's just, I keep learning about new stuff. I'm like, oh, there we go. (laughs) You might be saying, what is carpal tunnel? You might know all about it, but just in case you don't know, here's a few facts about it. Carpal tunnel is a condition that affects a nerve in your wrist called the median nerve. And the median nerve goes down your arm to your hand and passes through the wrist through a narrow area called the carpal tunnel. So what causes it during pregnancy? Usually it's caused by excess fluid and swelling. According to verywellfamily.com, it's actually a pretty common discomfort in pregnancy and you don't hear about it very often. Up to 60% of women experience it during pregnancy. And most of the time it's mild. Every once in a while, it can be very painful and interfere with daily life. You're more likely to get carpal tunnel at the end of your pregnancy or if you're a first-time mom over 30 years old. So what does it feel like? It feels like pins and needles in your fingers and hands, feeling like your hand is falling asleep or numb. Weakness when you're trying to grab objects, pain in your hand, wrist and forearm, a burning sensation or swelling. Oh, it sounds really fun, right? Uh, pregnancy. It's so common to feel these symptoms at night, especially or when you first wake up. Shaking your hands usually helps, they say. Ice compresses, hot compresses, elevating your arms, Tylenol, massage, wrist splints, acupuncture, yoga. If you have these symptoms, talk to your doctor find some relief if you can. But no, you're not alone. Apparently 60% of pregnant women get this. And I did not know that, but now we know. 
And then the other one that I kind of did want to bring up just in case anyone else ever goes through it. But with my first son, um, I had an episode of Bell's palsy. Oh, you like did? Half my face froze. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And then I found out that can be kind of common too. And, but nobody had ever mentioned it before. I'd never heard of it before it happened to me. Mm-hmm. But midway through the second trimester, my face just paralyzed on one half for a week, two weeks. That must have been scary. A little bit. Yeah. I mean, when it yeah. happened and you didn't know it was related to pregnancy, like what did you do? You just went to the doctor and they told you, oh, this is probably because you're pregnant or? Yeah. I, my, I'm fortunate. My doctor is also a friend of mine. Mm. So I kind of have her on speed dial, but I told her, Hey, my face feels kind of funny. I don't know what's going on. And she actually uh, made a house call because if it wasn't Bell's palsy, it could have been like symptoms of a stroke or something like yeah. that. So so she came over, she looked at me and, and she told me that that's probably what it was. And then, yeah. Oh my goodness. So did that last then from, at what point did you get that? And then did it last for the rest of your pregnancy? It didn't. Thank goodness. Um, it was probably around like maybe 24 weeks. Um, oh, okay. And then it went away like two or three weeks later. So I was lucky. Wow. How crazy is that? What is Bell's palsy and what does it feel like? And what does it look like? Bell's palsy causes either partial or complete facial weakness, including loss of feeling and movement in your forehead, eyelid, cheek, and mouth. You could look like basically someone who just had a stroke, a sagging eyebrow, a drooping side of your mouth. Because of this, some of the side effects might include drooling, slurred speech, difficulty eating or drinking, and dryness and redness in your affected eye. But the good news is most of the time, these symptoms only last a couple weeks. Thank God. I mean, according to the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke, 40,000 people in the United States are diagnosed with Bell's palsy every year. And yes, even though everyone can get it, pregnant women are at the top of the list for people who are at risk of getting it. I mean, odds are it's not going to happen to you, but it's important to talk about because the list of astounding pregnancy side effects continues to grow and grow and get more crazy. Anyone who's ever said women are the weaker vessel can just go get their head examined because women are seriously the toughest. So as you're like preparing to give birth for the first time and you're looking forward to that due date and it's coming, what were your feelings? Were you feeling afraid? Were you feeling prepared? Like how were you mentally, emotionally about the prospect of giving birth for the first time? In hindsight, I was very anxious and I wish I'd been more aware of that because that kind of carried into my postpartum a little bit. But I would stay up till, you know, like midnight looking at all the different bassinets and, oh, bassinets are a death trap. And, you know, like it just, I worked myself up about all these things that then once you have the kid there, you realize, you know, I didn't need to worry about this as much as I did. Yeah. Other than that, we were really excited. Yeah. Um, we took a class at the hospital. We took a breastfeeding class. Did you feel like those classes were helpful for you? They were really helpful at giving you a general idea of what would happen, you know, the different stages and phases of labor mm-hmm. and, and what to expect at the hospital. But in hindsight, like if I could go back in time, I would probably have sought out an independent class just because I feel like they have more time to go into a lot more. Sometimes they present you the full spectrum of, because one thing that I got into with my second pregnancy, I finally wound up with the care of a midwife Mm. towards the tail end of it. And so that was like night and day from what I experienced with my first pregnancy. Mm. And it prepared me at the time 
but then everything we learned about kind of went out the window a little bit because I was trying to go a, a natural, unmedicated route. With your first baby? With you my were? first. Okay. Yeah. Wow. And also, one thing I would have considered more the first time around was having a doula. And I did have a doula the second time around. Okay. And I didn't think it was worth the money. And I thought, you know, we took a class and I trust my doctor and he'll know or she'll know what they're doing. And now I've seen what not having a doula was like and what having a doula was like. And if I could go back to my first pregnancy self, I'd say, think about it. Think wow. about hiring a doula. Wow. So you took these classes, you're preparing for an all natural, unmedicated, but in a hospital childbirth, yeah. right? Okay. Yeah. All right. So tell me, so towards the end of your pregnancy, how are you feeling? And then how did you know that you were in labor? You know, what was that like? So I was feeling kind of frustrated because side note, I had two friends from high school who were pregnant at the same time and they were both due after me, but both had their kids before me. Oh, that comparison game is strong with the motherhood. It starts yeah. immediately and that's, yeah. that sucks. <laughs> well, I mean, I got the benefit of learning from them, you know, because okay. they were telling me what it felt like and what it was like, but it was just frustrating then to sit there and wait and go, okay, how many more days? When's he coming? I hit my 40 weeks and I wanted to try and keep going because I'd read and heard that, you know, you want to try and avoid inductions if you can. Mm -hmm. So she wanted to put an induction on the books at the 40 week appointment and just get me scheduled. And I kind of pushed back and said, I'd rather just wait. Two days after my 40 week appointment, they did a non-stress test where they, you know, hook you up to all the monitors. Real quick. So how do they do a non-stress test? What are they looking for? Basically, you will simply just sit or lie down and fetal monitoring equipment will be strapped to your belly. It takes about 30 minutes and the doctor is just looking to see how the baby's heart rate is doing and what sort of activity is happening in your uterus. So you might be asked to press a button when the baby moves so that the baby's heart rate can be seen in relation to its movement. And just remember, the goal of the test is to reassure the practitioner that the baby is doing really well. But if you have this procedure done, make sure you ask a lot of questions so that you can also feel very reassured. And they were having a tiny, tiny bit of trouble getting all the information that they needed. Okay. And so when that happened, I said, okay, let's go ahead and put an induction on the books. It was going to be for, I think, 41 weeks exactly. So I had a few more days to kind of go into labor on my own. And then that was a Wednesday and I woke up on that Friday morning, kind of, sort of, I thought I was in labor and then, but I never really fully went into labor on my own. Okay. So, so just a, maybe a little bit of uncomfortable cramping or something? Or? There was a tiny, tiny bit of cramping. And then when I went to the bathroom and wiped, there was a little bit of discharge. And again, in hindsight, I probably, I had an appointment scheduled for like one o'clock that day. I probably should have been like, hey, can I come in right now? Because it was a little bit greenish or yellowish, mm. um, which means there might have been an infection. There might have been meconium. And I didn't really know what I was looking at. I didn't yeah. know, is this truly amniotic fluid? Is it my mucus plug? Is it just discharge? Is it enough to be the infection that they're talking about? Because you don't know. You've right. never been through this before. I know. And that mucus plug is such a mystery. When, if, if you've yeah. never experienced that before, you're like, what is the, what am I yeah. looking for? <laughs> What's that yeah. going to be like? So I can imagine that that was confusing. Wow. Yeah. So you, you woke up on that Friday morning. Uh, you had this 
confusing discharge. And then, but the induction was planned for that day still? Or when was it was it? planned for the Monday. Oh, so okay. I, yeah. So it was a couple days early. So I was kind of excited, like, okay, hey, maybe I dodged the induction. Maybe I'm going to do this on my own. And then I called the doctor's office and they, again, I don't know if I didn't explain it well to them what was going on, but they were like, oh yeah, you'll be fine. Just come to your one o'clock appointment today. And I waited around all morning. We made sure we ate something and I kept leaking a little bit. Uh And I learned from talking to my doula during my second pregnancy that it was probably a tear, Uh like a tear in the amniotic sac, but not the whole thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, That's probably what happened to me too. Yeah. yeah, Interesting. Little gushes. um, I had a pad on and I felt a few cramps every now and then, but maybe once every 40 minutes, once every 20 minutes, it never really got into any sort of regular pattern at all. Mm. So then what happened? I went to the doctor and I told the woman at the desk, I think I might be in labor. So they said, okay, well, we'll get you back there. We'll do, they wanted to do an ultrasound to see what he looked like. And when they did the ultrasound, they noticed that I hardly, I had like low fluid. Mm. So even though my waters didn't completely break, it was low fluid. There's a score they give the baby and to say, okay, can we continue the pregnancy? Do we need to do something now? And he scored pretty low on that. Yeah. That must've felt scary. Or what did you think? Did it, did you feel like they were explaining it well to you or you were just kind of lost in the woods with, with everything that was going on? I feel like now knowing what I know, I feel like it could have been explained a little bit better. Um, I knew that I had low fluid. I knew that we needed to go over to the hospital today. We needed to get the baby out. Um, The doctors didn't seem concerned about it. Like there was no sense of urgency or an emergency, but the woman who came in and it happened to be the one doctor in the practice I hadn't met yet. Mm. She said, okay, I'll see you over in the hospital. We're going to have a baby today. Okay. Not urgent, but definitely like, hey, we need to do this. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Oh my gosh. So then did they, was the plan, let's just get you on Pitocin or what kind of induction method were they going to use? They, they chose Pitocin. Okay. And I think that probably I was a facing, but I wasn't dilating. So I don't think they needed to ripen my cervix. I think I was good enough there. So they started the Pitocin. I remember being way too timid when I got to the hospital with my first birth. Like I remember I was still kind of, you know, you're just losing all sorts of fluids down there. Mm -hmm. And and I remember kind of apologizing for kind of making a mess. And, Mm -hmm. you know, now it's just like, okay, who cares? But yeah, the first time I, I apologized to the nurse for leaking fluid on the floor. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's something that's really normal. And it's also something that women do in general is apologize Mm -hmm. for things they shouldn't apologize for. Like you're doing something that's so different than your everyday activity. Like it's so primal Mm -hmm. and it's so natural, but it's also kind of intense because you're also like discovering these things that your body is doing that you've never experienced it your body do before. Right. So it seems like kind of weird. And to be like, I'm sorry to nurses who see this stuff every day. Yes. Anyone listening, you don't have to do that. It is absolutely normal and they've seen it all and Mm -hmm. just go with it. Right. Yeah. And also like, I had no idea you just keep gushing things. Yeah. You know, once you start, like everybody says, oh, your water breaks. And then nobody ever mentions that things just keep coming out. Yeah, it is totally normal. Yeah. So true. Nobody talks about that really. Yeah. 
So you get on the Pitocin and then how does, tell me about the birth, like in the labor and what happened. Yeah. I feel like having to go and get on the Pitocin kind of slowly like tailspinned all my birth plans because mm. like even things I would have done differently now, I put on my birth plan, I want to move as much as possible. And even if you get hooked up to IVs and a bunch of cords, you can still move, mm -hmm. but you have to kind of be set up for that to be successful. And she put the IV lines right in my hand. So every time I would bend my hand, I could kind of feel them a little bit. And she said, oh, I can't get it in your arm. Well, me now would say, okay, time out. Can you go get another nurse who can do that? Right. But at the time I, I didn't speak up. So I had this IV line in my hand. So it was awkward, like, because I did prenatal yoga, which I highly recommend to anyone. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to get down and like do my cat cow poses and, and all sorts of things. And immediately from like square one, I felt like I couldn't do a lot of that because of the IV needle. You know what? That's true. Mm -hmm. I They put it in my hand too. And I didn't yeah. even think twice that they could put it somewhere else. Yeah. So that's a good point. Yeah. Did they have a option for you to have a monitor that you could walk around with or? They didn't really. And I don't know if they didn't at all, or if I just didn't think to ask for it. Right. But, so I had the monitor strapped onto me. I had the Pitocin drip and it was fine for a while. I, my husband was there. My sister came along for the birth because she's in the medical field. I wanted her to see all that. And oh, she, wow. I knew she could kind of tell me what was going on on all the monitors. And so I was talking and joking and things for a while. And then a couple hours into it, I just felt like I got hit with a dump truck mm. because when they, when they slowly dial up that Pitocin, it gives you those contractions that are stronger than if your body kind of did it on its own. Yeah. So I tried to work with them for a little while. And then after a while, I just, I realized I wasn't relaxing because they were so strong. So the plan to to be kind of completely med-free went out the window and I asked for an epidural, got that. And then one thing I've learned since then as well that the doula kind of helped with in my second birth, I didn't realize that you had to move as much as you could once you got the epidural. So the nurses did move me because they had to, to kind of keep the medicine going into my legs. But I feel like if I'd had a doula that first time, she would have made sure that I moved a lot more than I was moving. Mm. Rotate sides more, peanut ball, different positions. I really just felt like the first birth, I was kind of getting turned back and forth. You didn't have a peanut ball with the first? I don't remember a peanut ball. Yeah. If they brought one in, by the time they did, I was just too tired or out of it to notice. Yeah. But it's a lot. Yeah. You might ask yourself, what's a peanut ball? If you've never seen one, it's literally like an exercise ball, like a yoga ball. That's my sweet baby in the background, by the way. Peanut ball is actually, uh, it looks like a yoga ball, but it is exactly how it sounds. It's shaped like a peanut. And you should ask your doctor if they have one to help you labor, especially if you're going to plan on having an epidural. It's really, really helpful to keep your hips open and get the baby down into your pelvis while you're, you're laying there. It's good. How many hours would you say you were laboring at this point, like, you know, before you got the epidural and do I you remember? Went in, yeah, I went in at like three in the afternoon. I want to say it was like 9 p.m. when I finally got the epidural. Okay. So you wait, you waited a while. Yeah. Wow. 
So then do you remember how were they checking you to see how dilated you were? Were you making progress? Yeah. And that's that's kind of where this birth completely derailed a little bit because I was slowly, very, very slowly making progress with the Pitocin. But every time they tried to dial the Pitocin up a little bit more, his heart rate wasn't handling it very well. So we kind of reached a point where we were playing games with, okay, how, how high can we turn the Pitocin up and he'll be okay? Let's turn it back down. Let's get him stable. And I just remember through the course of the night, it was, well, let's, let's move you to your left side so that we can see if his heartbeat goes back up. Then at one point in the middle of the night, they gave me oxygen mm-hmm. to see if that would help. They tried, there's a, the same catheter that they can use to do, to measure the internal contractions. They can pump fluids back in. Yeah. To try and help the baby. They tried that. Yeah. They did that with me too. All this stuff. Yeah. yeah. So they literally did everything. And I looked at the nurse one point overnight and I said, how much longer before they tell me I have to have a C-section? Like I just knew, you know, mm. I just felt it like with all the different interventions, the oxygen mass turned this way, turned that way. It just, it didn't feel good. Like it felt like, okay, this is where we're heading. And at around 5 a.m. they came in and they said, we're going to give it about half more, half an hour more. But if you're not progressing and he doesn't look quite a hundred percent happy with this, we're going to have to take you back to surgery. Wow. And oh, go ahead. Oh, no. I was just curious if they were also concerned because you said earlier that there had been some green fluid. Did they think that he had expelled his meconium? Okay. So he had pooped. Okay. So that was probably another, I mean, I know for my son, it didn't happen till a little bit, like I was there for a day (laughs) and then it it happened, but that was a concern they had as well on top of his heart rate going down. So the cards seem like they're stacking up at this point. Yeah. I think I only made it to about six centimeters in the end and they couldn't give me any more Pitocin because he wasn't liking it. Um, And I found out after the fact from, you know, my sister and the other people in the room that he was having those D cells that are the ones that they don't like him to have. Like they have D cells, like their, their heartbeats I think are supposed to go down like during a contraction or something like that. And then his were dipping afterwards or in between. They weren't recovering. They weren't recovering. Yeah. So. That's, it's so tough. It's so tough because you just want your kiddo to be okay. And yeah. um, So how were you when they said, okay, we, we got to do, we got to take you to surgery. Tell me about where you were at. And did you feel just what was that moment like? That must've been hard. Yeah, honestly, in the moment, um, at some point in the early morning, my epidural had worn off on one side. Mm. So by the time they called the C-section, I was most concerned with, am I going to feel this? Are you going to give me more drugs? Because they all kept saying, oh, we need to do the C-section. Do you have any questions? And the only question I kept asking is, I'm not going to feel this, right? You're going to be able to make this go. You're going to be able to numb me again, right? So like that was the only thing on my mind in the moment. I was so scared I was going to feel something. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of accepted that this is what needs to happen for baby. Yeah. But then it was just the fear of, I, I hope you give me more drugs because I can feel things on one half of my body right now. Right. So what did they do? Did they end up having to put you under or did they were they able to get the epidural working for you again? I think they were able to get it working again because I feel like if they had to do a spinal or something, I would know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think they must have just pumped something a lot stronger through it. Yeah. And yeah. Good. 
Good, good, good. Okay. So how did the C-section go then? It went all right. What was that like? It's, it's an odd sensation to just be in an operating room on a table, you know, and like, I, I remember getting kind of nauseous and they had to give me some medicine to help with that. But I remember the anesthesiologist being kind of my anchor because they're right up by your head. And I was, he said, now you tell me what you're feeling. You tell me if you need anything. And so the advice I've given to all, any mom I know who's going to have a C-section since then is talk to your anesthesiologist because everyone else is busy, you know, with, with the tools and the curtain and, and figuring out what's going on. And they're right at your head and their only job is to make sure that you're okay. Wow. That's such good advice. That's such good advice. I mean, no one's ever told me that before. So thank you for mentioning that. That's so important. And who was a, who was allowed to be in the room? Was your partner there and your, what about your sister or no? No, no. And I know some, some hospitals will let more than one person in, but we didn't even think to ask at the time. So it was just um, my husband who came in with me and that was it. The, the one doctor that I hadn't met and then another one in the practice. And I remember he was joking with my husband the whole time. And that's another reassuring sign. Like if they're telling jokes and things like that, and everything's okay. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So tell me the moment of birth. What was that like? Do you remember the moment that he came out and, and what were the events around that? You know, because that was like almost four years ago. I don't remember as much, but I remember being excited that he was out and my husband got to go over and see him. And then they brought him over. And the one thing I do remember clear as day is you look at that face and he looked like a complete stranger, but also so familiar at the same time. Because, mm. you know, you you can't even picture what they're like. You see a black and white ultrasound and then these little eyes are staring at you. It's like, oh, it's you. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. It's like, wow. you're you're literally meeting this new human for the first time yeah. and he's, and he's yours. It's such a strange yeah. moment. Wow. So did you get to like do any skin to skin right away or was, how was the baby? Was he okay? Yeah, he was okay. I don't remember anything being wrong with him. I think they brought him over. They tried to put him on my chest a little bit, but I got the shakes real bad. Yeah. So I, I was fine with them just kind of holding him up to me a little bit. And then they wanted to take him for a few minutes to the NICU just to kind of look him over, but he was fine. I think they just wanted to kind of make sure. I remember being in the recovery room for, I don't know how long it was until they brought him back. And I was shaking the entire time. Wow. Like teeth chattering, shaking, like trying to calm myself down. And no, nobody tells you that that's, normal for birth and then also normal for a surgery. And I'm just sitting there like, you know, trying to control it. Yeah. Very scared at that point. It is very scary because uh, it's, you know, feels like you're going into shock. I was completely yeah. unprepared for that as well. I had yeah. the major shakes for hours and I did not understand. And it felt like something I was doing wrong, like the, my fear mm-hmm. or something. I didn't understand that it was a biological process of your yeah. body and a reaction. So yeah. Wow. So how was your recovery then in the hospital? Do you remember much about, you know, I'm sure you do, but uh, you know, a major surgery. Did you feel, yeah. how, how was that? It was a major surgery, but I don't think at the time it sunk in my head that it was a major surgery. And I think that kind of worked against me a little bit. Before I forget, one of the things that did help with the shaking 
when they finally brought him back in from the NICU and I got to put him on my chest, shaking stopped. Wow. So, I mean, I know that's not going to be an instant response for everybody, but I just thought it was so cool that finally having him back there made that difference. Ooh, that gave me the chills. <laughs> oh, oh, that's I remember so cool. that moment. Wow. That's powerful. That's powerful. Yeah. And had you decided that you wanted to breastfeed or, or what yeah. was your, what was your decision? Yeah. Okay. So I wanted to breastfeed and that, that was a whole other struggle um, mm. because he, he wound up having oral motor issues that we didn't find out about until like a couple months later. So he tore my nipples up in oh. the hospital. So our, our recovery in that hospital was a reason that we chose not to go back to that hospital for our second birth, I really felt like we weren't taken care of at all. Like the birth was fine. The surgery was as okay as it could be. But then when we got to recovery, nobody told me how to order food at first. So I I missed my first main meal that night. Somebody had to go scrounge up a sandwich for me. They were kind of insensitive to the nursing thing. He was losing weight. So something wasn't right and it was the oral motor issues, but they took him away from me trying to nurse him in the middle of a feeding to weigh him and start formula. Mm. And that is not okay. (laughs) Like they could have, I understand now that he needed to get formula. I needed to figure out what was going on with him. I needed to pump, but they could have like, let me finish trying that feeding and then come back later. And again, me now would have said, I'm sorry, no, you're going to have to come back. But me at the time just sort of gave my baby up. Um, yeah, there's this sort of social myth that the who the nurses and the doctors are just in control, right? And mm-hmm. whatever they say, you just go along with without realizing that you as the parent have powerful, powerful instincts mm-hmm. and you have rights, right? Yeah. And that's, that's also so crazy. I mean, that's something that I hear most often is that the postpartum few first few days after giving birth that that moms feel completely untaken care of and that's a crime because that's horrible that's the, that's almost more the the care that you need to receive during that period of time is almost more important to me in my opinion than the birth i mean all of it's important but yeah. there's so much newness happening especially with the first time mom and learning how to feed did they have a lactation consultant at the hospital you were at or not really they did and i i saw a couple of them But one of my other big pieces of advice that I give to any other woman or mom I talk to now is find your own Mm -hmm. because the ones in the hospital are there. They try their hardest, but they're overworked, they're understaffed, and they don't have the time to sit with you. And it took it took me getting home two months later, having a private consult with this girl that I met through a friend of mine, and she spent an hour with him. She did a weighted feed. She completely examined his his muscles around his mouth. And nobody in the hospital, they they spend maybe 15 minutes with you. And again, it's not their fault, but they're oversta- understaffed and overworked. Right. And most people don't know that the Affordable Care Act made it so that it's mandatory for insurance to cover mm-hmm. a lactation consultant. So yeah. it should be free for everybody if you have insurance now and yeah. your, your breast pump and your consult with a lactation consultant. And that's your right. And most people really don't know. And a lot of people don't get the help because it's, it is, it can be expensive. Having a new baby is expensive yeah. and you don't think to reach out because it's, you know, also you're not feeling like. <laughs> 
<laughs> doing anything except for recovering sometimes yeah. in those first few days. But yeah. wow. A lot of private lactation consultants will either do house calls for an extra fee or some of them will even come to the hospital if you connect with them ahead of time. Right, right. Because it's so hard anyway, but especially if there's an undiagnosed, you know, oral problem yeah. with the baby, which it sounds like there was, then man, that's that can be so frustrating. Yeah. Do you feel like there's any advice that you would give anybody that maybe would help them uh, yeah. in the first weeks, you know, of recovering from a C-section? What would you say? Yeah. So the one thing that I mentioned this before, it didn't really sink into me because like one third of all births are C-sections now, but it's major surgery and you need to go easy on yourself. And not only is it major surgery, but it's abdominal surgery. That's your core. That's everything. And I got home from the hospital and I was already in a bad place because I hadn't been treated well there. And I was trying to be super mom and do it all. And I was running myself ragged. I was trying to be the only one getting up for every feeding. Um, mm. I just felt so, and I, I really, I did have postpartum anxiety, but I just didn't realize it until three months later. I felt so wound up and like I had to take care of everything and like a failure because I'd been through the C-section and like a failure because the nursing wasn't going well. Like my body hadn't do, done anything it was supposed to do. And then I wasn't giving myself the chance to rest and heal. Right. And finally, a friend of mine came over and she looked at me and she said, you just had major surgery. Go put your feet up, ask for what you need. And I did that the second time around. I don't think I left the couch after my second C-section for the first week and a half. And my healing was so much better. Like you have to sit lay down, feed your baby and let people wait on you. Yeah. You know, especially for a major surgery, but like almost, I think it's also part of like American culture that, mm -hmm. I mean, this is my own opinion, but that moms need to like do everything and then just like get right back to it and snap. Or yeah. maybe it's just Western culture because I had an acupuncturist that helped me in my pregnancy when I had hyperemesis and could yeah. had trouble like not vomiting. And so she really, really was an amazing, um, comfort to me and help me feel better. But she was Korean and she was telling me about Korean culture and how in Korean culture, the mother is not allowed to get up out of bed and everyone waits on their hand and foot like, you know, and this is just any kind of birth, you know, they just like, there's some sort of respect and care for your body after going through this major thing that we just yeah. don't practice here. And how much better would it be for our collective mental health as mothers in general, and also our physical well-being, and we could be there for our babies if we just take yeah. that advice that you just, the simplest thing of being willing to rely on other people for a short time and asking for help and really, really uh, taking care of yourself. Uh, so important. Yeah. And that was that I got that from the midwife that I found toward the tail end of my second pregnancy. And she looked at me and she said, and this was even when I was planning on having a vaginal birth. She said, the first two weeks, you do nothing. Mm. You lay there, you feed your baby, you rest, you do nothing. Wow. I love her. That sounds, yeah. <laughs> that sounds <laughs> she was right, amazing. right. Awesome. Okay. So I mean, there's so many things I want to go into with the first birth and we'll probably cover more of it when you're telling me about the second one, Yeah. but it sounds like you had some postpartum anxiety. So maybe we just talk about that real quick, like your mental yeah. health with the first, how was your journey with mental health after the first one? It, it was a little rocky. And, and again, the first time around I was kind of in denial. So then the second time I was more proactive, but I have 
a history of PMDD, um, premenstrual dysphoric disorder. So okay. I was predisposed to kind of having mental health issues around pregnancy anyway. Mm. And with the way the birth went and the way breastfeeding was going, and I did manage to rescue that and I pumped for nine months. Wow. So it, yeah, that's um, good. That's hard to pump. I, I hated pumping. Yeah. That's impressive. I, I was an exclusive pumper for wow. nine months with formula, like no shame in that either. But yeah. Anyone who's never breastfed or pumped or any man listening, like they don't understand how difficult that is. And that's yeah. another thing like moms make it seem like it's no big deal, but it's such a full-time job to yeah. feed your baby from your own body, especially if you're pumping. It's so admirable to me that you committed to that because yeah. uh, that's hard. That's hard. Yeah. Wow. Uh, but uh, while that was going on, and I did have a supportive husband because we'd taken the breastfeeding class at the hospital and that one was useful. And when he learned like all the benefits for the baby and that the milk changes to suit their needs. He was very on board with helping me. He would get up in the middle of the night with feedings and, and help me out with that. So I had that, but I was very guilty about having to go back to work and I felt like my body had failed me and about, I was fighting with my husband all the time, picking fights, like, mm -hmm. you know, stupid stuff. And I just kept getting so wound up about things. I didn't want to leave the baby the baby's daycare offered to keep him. We had a home daycare. They offered to keep him so we could go out on Valentine's day. And I was just so apathetic about it. I didn't want to do it. Mm. And I finally, I looked at my husband, I think it was about three months in. I looked at him one day and I said, you just need to divorce me and find somebody who can be a better mother to our kid. And then I immediately called my friend up and said, I can't believe I just said that. And she said, you need to find somebody to talk to because that's not normal. Right. Right. Well, it shouldn't have to be the way that you're, you feel, right? That's yeah. the main thing is like, wow, yeah. no one should have to feel like that. And yes, there are ways that you can help not feel like that. What yeah. a good friend that she said that to you in that moment. She's amazing. <laughs> did you, um, so you feel like after that you sought out and maybe got the help that you needed? I did. And I set myself up for so much better success the second time around. I found a, a therapist and I still see her now. We Great. connected and, and she's helped me a lot. I wound up getting on a low dose of some meds mm -hmm. that was safe to be on while breastfeeding. Yeah. And so one thing to keep in mind is if you go through that with one pregnancy, you're more prone to get it the second time around. Mm. And my friend, who's also my doctor, sat me down and she said, it's also likely that it might be a little worse. So we need to be way more proactive about it the second time around. You're not just going to sit around and wait until you crash. We're actually going to get you on a treatment plan and planning to see your counselor like before you even leave the hospital the second time. Wow. That's something yeah. nobody talks about. So yeah. that's really important. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. It's good. It's good that they help prepare you. Yeah. So then as you're, you have all this in mind, did they talk about this before you were even pregnant with your second baby? Or was that a conversation that came up after you became pregnant with the second? Do I think remember? it came up after I became pregnant mm -hmm. with the second. And again, just because my doctor's also a friend, she sat down with me as a friend and she basically said, look, this, if this happens again, this is how we're going to handle it. Wow. So, and, and again, not to scare anyone because, you know, every pregnancy is different, but if you're predisposed to something, it's better to know and be proactive than to crash and burn. 
Yeah, I totally agree. We need to take a quick break to learn an animal fact. You want a, a fun shark fact? A birth fact about sand tiger sharks? Okay, here it is. The female sand tiger shark have two uteri and they carry hundreds of eggs, but they also mate with a lot of different dude sharks. Okay, I'm talking like a lot of them. So a lot of the eggs get fertilized by different fathers. But here's the catch. Only two baby sharks will be born. So inside her uteruses, the baby sharks fight for dominance by, and I'm totally serious here, eating each other. That's right. The strongest baby shark in each uterus will consume all the other embryos and leftover eggs. And after a 12-month pregnancy, that mama shark gives birth to twins and says, peace, murderous offspring, and she swims away to let them fend for themselves. I dare you not to think of this fun fact the next time you hear baby shark, do, 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 baby shark, do, 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 baby shark, do, 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 you murderer. So then with your second pregnancy, can we compare it with the first? So how did the second pregnancy go? And you had mentioned already that the conception was, again, pretty, you know, quick, yeah. quicker than you were expecting, which is awesome. Was there um, any major differences with the second one? You didn't get Bell's palsy again, did you? No, I didn't get Bell's palsy again. I got the carpal tunnel. Okay. Yeah, I got Bell's palsy the first time. I got carpal tunnel with the second one. The nausea was still there. I had a really stressful job at the time, so I turned to stress eating a little bit. So I think I uh, sort of, um, I don't know if I set myself up for a little bit of, of issues with, with the baby's weight the second time around, but I had a big baby the second time around. Um, How big was the first one? The first one was seven pounds and 12 ounces. Okay. So that's and a good size, not tiny. Yeah. No. And the second one was 10 pounds, five ounces. Oh my goodness. <laughs> you got a chubby baby. They're so yeah. cute. <laughs> he's adorable. We call him the tank. <laughs> he's, he's just solid still. That's a great nickname. I love yeah. that. That's awesome. So you maybe ate a little more and gained a little more weight with the second yeah, I, I still stayed within like the weight gain that you're supposed to, mm -hmm. but I just, I, I could have made healthier food choices. Right. Well, um, I mean, it's hard. <laughs> it's hard for any pregnancy, but you know, yeah. as long as you're healthy and the baby's healthy and the yeah. doctor wasn't worried. No, Good. The, the midwife gave me a little bit of a uh, crap about it, oh. rightly so. But <laughs> um, so one of the things that I decided right away, like even before I got pregnant again, was that I wanted to try and be back. Okay. Um, and that's vaginal birth after cesarean. Right. I did a bunch of research and it's actually recommended for low risk mothers now. And the problem is a lot of doctors are still behind the times on that. So in, in my area, it's a struggle. Hmm. So, you know, it is interesting. It depends on sometimes where you live. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I've heard this yeah. a few times. It's like, sometimes the just the resources that you have in your neck of the woods are different depending on what's going on yeah. with your own medical care providers. So did you feel like, okay, first of all, how, how do you know if you might be a candidate for a VBAC or not? 
Yeah, off the top of my head, I I don't remember all of it, but one of the big things is your scar from your C-section can't be the the vertical scar. It has to be the low Mm -hmm. belly incision one. And it's kind of even controversial who should be a good candidate because a lot of doctor's offices will whip out a VBAC calculator and plug in a bunch of information to see if you'd be a good candidate. And your age factors into it. I think whether or not you've actually had a vaginal birth before that, they even, and I know this is a hot topic right now, they even factor race into it, which is- That's insane. yeah, Yeah, it's a total socioeconomic thing, but all sorts of things like that. And I had the right kind of scar. I really didn't pay a lot of attention to a lot of the other factors because it was something in my mind, my body was made to have children- this pregnancy is going to be totally different from the last one. Give me a chance. Right. The worst that's going to happen, hopefully, is just we're going to have to call it and have another surgery. Right, right. So, that's a good, you know, you have a good attitude and perspective on it. Yeah. Realistic. There, there is a chance of a uterine rupture, um, but it's like less than 2%. It's not much, yeah. Yeah. So to avoid the the second surgery, the second major surgery, and there are lots of risks to having multiple C-sections. And right. sometimes the, the benefit outweighs the risk for a lot of women planning the C-section is a better choice. But if you have the option to have the vaginal birth, you can avoid a whole host of medical issues by trying right. for it. Right. Oh, so interesting. I can't wait to read more about it. But at what point did you decide I need to leave the doctor that I'm seeing? Because I feel like that's a big moment, right? In your journey. Yeah, that was a whole big moment in my journey. So I actually chose to hire a doula early. Okay. Because I knew that if I was going to put my foot down and, and fight for what I wanted, if it was a fight, I needed somebody who'd been down that road before. And that was kind of the choice to hire a doula. So before I even hired the doula, she asked me who my doctor was and I told her and she said, well, obviously it's your choice what you do, but I've had experience with that office before and I can tell you, you can get your VBAC, but it's going to be a struggle. Okay. So you might want to kind of interview other doctors, see what else is out there. And I chose to listen and I chose, I didn't like the hospital anyway that we were going to be delivering at if we stuck with the same doctor. So I think I wound up choosing my new doctor based on what I knew was going to be the most VBAC friendly hospital in the area. Okay. And and there was one office that was kind of known for being VBAC friendly. And a couple of my friends had used them and said, yeah, we like them. So I went and did an appointment with them. Okay. And I even left them to find the midwife because they were not a good fit for me. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So sometimes you just have to keep looking. It sounds like. Yeah. Wow. And, and so having the doula that early, she was my constant. So yeah. every time I had to flip flop and switch and go somewhere else, I had her to call and she would kind of pep talk me and give me some ideas. And I think there was less fear having to switch gears a lot of times because I knew that one person was still on my team. That's good. That's good. Yeah. I didn't really honestly realize that you could hire a doula that early. Yeah. Like I sort of thought it was like, okay, for when you have your birth and and maybe after and that's it. But that's great. That's really good to know. So when you finally were like, none of these doctors are working for me and you decided to seek out a midwife, was that with the intention that you would try to give birth in a birth center or at home? Or what was the plan then if you went, you left your doctor for a midwife? 
at that point, I, I always knew I was going to do the hospital. Okay. But the midwife that I found, she'll do your prenatal care. Oh, okay. And then send you, and she gives you like a little card with all your stats from your visits and you take it with you. And I do want to say the tipping point for leaving that second office was because they were not taking my mental health concerns seriously. Uh, so if anybody ever has a provider who's not taking something seriously, it's time to find a new provider because yes, yes. They, they turned me away. I made an appointment because I was being proactive and I was, I was already having like signs of depression, anxiety, like about the 20 week mark. And mm. so I made an appointment. I went in, I was 10 minutes late to the appointment and I had called them and told them, hey, I'm running a few minutes late. And they, I showed up 10 minutes late and they said, I'm sorry, you're going to have to reschedule. So mm. I, I lost it right there in the waiting room. And I said, you know, I'm done then cancel all the rest of my appointments. I'm not coming back here. And I made a big scene and then left. Yeah. That's tough because, uh, you know, I, I remember getting frustrated once at my doctor's office too, because uh, like uh, soon after giving birth, they were so insensitive and I didn't have childcare. I had to bring my baby with me. He was screaming. I was definitely depressed. Didn't know it. I remember feeling so angry that they weren't feel being more sensitive to me. It's like, if you're going to be working with mothers to be or new moms where yeah. this depression is a big issue anyways, perinatal depression, like, yeah. and you're not going to be sensitive to that group, then get a different job is how I yeah. feel, you know, like, what are you doing? Um, yeah. So I'm really sorry that happened to you because ugh, there's nothing worse than that. But it sounds like you found someone that you felt very, you, like you could trust who took care of your needs yeah. and listened to you. So how is that then switching to the prenatal care with a midwife? Did you feel like, I mean, that was very different, right? Because there's then there's no ultrasounds or any of that, right? What was what were those appointments there like? There are that? still, um, for any, any medical procedures that she had to do that she couldn't do, she'd write a script just like a doctor would and send me. So I'd already had the 20-week ultrasound, but towards the end of the pregnancy, I actually went past my due date. So she wrote a script to have me do a biophysical profile. She did little things like the groupie strep swab she actually did in her office, but it was such a unique experience. She worked out of her house. She mm -hmm. had a room in the front of her house that was for, for her visits. The appointments were an hour long and it was an hour with her. It wasn't like you're waiting in a waiting room and then- Great. Yeah. So I had hour long visits and a lot of the times we just talked and she'd tell me things I needed to know about the way contractions would build during labor. We talked about nutrition. We talked a little bit about other births she'd attended recently. And, you know, just like this podcast, just hearing other people's stories kind of psychs you up. And it was just a unique experience. And like, that's another thing I tell a lot of moms now, like if you're on the fence and you're thinking midwifery versus doctor, like at least maybe interview somebody and see what it's like, because it was a totally different experience. Yeah. I felt taken care of. Well, it sounds like you, she treated you like a person, not just mm -hmm. a patient, like not just a number. Absolutely. And when she heard the reason for me leaving that doctor's office, she was livid too. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. Okay. So let's get to the birth. Let's hear yeah. what happened the second time around. So did you start laboring at home and um, were you in touch with your midwife? Did she, was she on the speed dial at all or tell me what happened? So I went past my, my due date. I went to 41 weeks and two days. <laughs> 
So I was getting by 42 weeks, you have, you risk out of midwifery care. So at 42 mm -hmm. weeks, I would have been in the hospital with an induction. I woke up, I was supposed to give birth three days before Christmas. Oh, wow. And yeah. So Christmas came and went. New Year's Eve came, still no baby. So I, I had a meltdown New Year's Eve, like I'm ruining our lives. I ruined the holidays. And then I woke up New Year's Day in labor. Oh my gosh. So it was wow. like he wanted his own year. Yeah. He just, you know, he didn't, he didn't want to share it with anyone. That's so funny. So I, I went to the bathroom this time when I woke up, wiped, and there was definitely a mucus plug there. And I got really excited because mm -hmm. I'd never gone into labor with my first. And I, I woke my husband up. I said, I think something's happening this time, but I don't want to get our hopes up yet. I just want to kind of see what happens. And then as the morning went on this time, sure enough, I felt kind of regular, low, mild contractions. And so we texted the midwife, we texted my doula, we said, hey, I think things are happening today. And the advice I got from my doula was eat a huge meal like you're about to run a marathon, take a walk or do some lunges and then rest because it was still like breakfast time and they knew that it would be a long, slow process to mm -hmm. get to the birth. So I took all their advice. Good. And yeah, I my mom came and got my son and uh, I labored at home all morning. I, I was able to walk through contractions, do you know some light odds and ends around the house. I think it wasn't until after lunch where I kind of started feeling them a little bit. And then I made it all the way until 7 p.m. before I, I looked at my husband. I said, we need to go to the hospital. So I, I feel like even though my second birth wound up ending up in a second C-section, I got the whole experience. Yeah. Yeah. Did your water break? It didn't. It didn't. No. Okay. Wow. Okay. So that's pretty impressive that you labored all day and then you're like, okay, we got to go. Yeah. Were you just in a lot of pain and you felt like it must have, were the contractions just really close together? Or? Yeah. They went from me managing it great to being about three minutes apart and extremely intense back labor in about the span of 20 minutes. So oh, back that labor. Was, yeah. Oh, it's yeah. horrible. I had that too. It yeah. is nuts. And people kind of sugarcoat it a lot, I think. I mean, yeah. again, don't want to scare anybody, but it's good to have some tools of counter pressure and stuff like that. I did not. So, yeah. um, wow. So back labor. So you get to the hospital and what are they telling you when you arrive? You know, were they concerned or where, where were you at? So the midwife actually did a home visit real oh. quick because we lived close to her. I kind of knew her outside of her being a midwife. I'd gone to school with her daughter. So she kind of knew me a little bit. She came to the house. She checked me. I was almost a six before we left the house. Wow. Yes. We celebrated that. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. That's really good. So the doula met us out the house and it was actually her partner because it's New Year's Day. So the doula who was on call, they, they work as a partnership. She was at another birth and the midwife and the other doula, the assistant were all off in different places. So she had to scurry back from her New Year's Day plans to, to help me out. And the hospital had also switched over to, they had rebranded. So even though I pre-filled out all my paperwork, I'm sitting there in triage. Oh, man. Refilling out all my paperwork with intense back labor. And I, I was in labor land at that point. Like I'm, I'm usually kind of introverted, like quiet. And I was like, moaning like a ghost in triage with my eyes closed, not, not caring who heard me. Oh, I'm like, glad you were to... this time around. Sounds like yeah, you didn't no. care. Good. Okay. 
like I'm making noise for all the world to hear. And, and we finally got through the paperwork and they checked me and I was a seven. Oh my goodness. Your body's like going. Yeah. I was getting places. Um, and again, God bless doulas. I could barely even dress and undress myself at this point. So she was like helping me into the hospital gown. They were all helping answer questions, like the basic intake questions and things like that. Everyone was kind of helping me through that because I was just in a zone at that point. Yeah, no kidding. Did you think, okay, I can't manage this pain or how are you doing with the pain? Did you decide to get medication for it or what did you do? I did. Okay. And even before I left the house, I looked at my husband when the midwife was there and I said, I, I can feel that my body's not relaxing. I think I'm going to need some help to get through this. And I beat myself up for a little while after that about that because I, I had kind of wanted to do it myself if I could, but I think it was what I needed. And yeah. because I was not just screaming for the epidural and I was talking about it between contractions I really feel like I was making an informed choice. It just Good. took me a while to come to that conclusion. Yeah. Yeah. So once I made that decision, when I was up in my room, you know, it takes time for them to call the anesthesiologist in. And like, I kept saying, I'm going to get my epidural, right? Like, I'm going to have time to get my epidural, right? I, at that point, it was like, you know, I'm not going to have the baby without it. Like, at that point, that was kind of what was going through my mind. Mm -hmm. I'm sure. I'm sure they were laughing about me. Well, you never know. And it's your second kid. And you just don't know how it's going to go. Yeah. I mean, everybody puts the fear of God on you. You better call them. You know, it could be too late. But <laughs> the truth is, like, it's probably pretty rare that you can't yeah. get it in time. Wow. So with the back labor, did the epidural work? Because I know sometimes it doesn't block as well with back labor. Yeah, it it worked. It worked very well. Good. I, I think I respond to them really well, though, because I get so just leaden then I can't feel anything. Okay. So it worked. And, and again, having a doula was great. She dimmed the light. She put on lavender oils. She made my husband take a nap. I felt very reassured by her being there because I felt all night long, like she was on top of the nurses. Let's turn her this way. Let's try this now. Let's do this. Let's do that. Knowing that somebody was there who knew what birth was like and what was happening was so reassuring. Yeah. What would you say that someone who might be interviewing a doula, like what sort of questions should they ask? Because I feel like you found a really good one. And, yeah. you know, I know that not all of them are maybe as experienced as maybe the one you had, or, I mean, mm -hmm. I'm just curious, what advice would you give for someone who might be looking at doulas and midwives? Like some of it's gut instinct. Mm. Like, you know, you have to kind of read them and, and know that they know what they're talking about and trust them and that you kind of connect. Right. Um, but find out what their credentials are, because unfortunately, there's not like one nationwide program to certify doulas. Right. There's a couple of big organizations and you can Google them and, and see if your doulas taken a course with any one of them. How many births have they been at? For me, it was very important that they had experience with VBAC and not just, you know, like first time moms and things like that. Right, right. Good. They, they really, as we were talking to them, talked like they knew the hospitals in our area. They knew kind of what to expect from different doctors and practices. So we got a really good read off of them. But yeah, just find out how much they cost, what their what their policies are for, you know, ours did like, I think two prenatal visits, the birth and two postnatal vi visits, like what's included. Yeah. Um, and, okay, and most, uh, most just do you connect with them? Yeah. And, and do they share kind of your vision for what 
is going to happen. Great. Okay. That's all so wonderful. Because, you know, sometimes it does feel like you don't know what you're getting, especially if it's a first time mom and you go, I don't know what to ask them. And you just, there's some trust and you're right. There is no sort of, yeah. how do I know that they are who they say they are and stuff like that with doulas. But sometimes insurance will cover a doula. I don't know what the, what the policies are for that. Like they might cover a portion of it. And then in our area right now, my doulas are actually running a program for student doulas. So if, if money's an issue and having somebody's better than nothing, sometimes they'll charge like a lower rate, you know, if they're just trying to get their experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, depending on who you are and what your needs are. Yeah, their options. Too. Right. Yeah. That's great. That's great. Okay. So you get the epidural at that mm-hmm. point, you're seven centimeters. Yeah. And then what happened? I, I rested. And then in the morning, I want to say I was eight or nine centimeters and I stalled out at that point. Because you didn't have to have any Pitocin at this point. They weren't uh, no. augmenting your labor. Yeah. Wow. Okay, Nothing. great. And and with VBACs, they have to be very careful what interventions they do. Like they can't give you cervical ripening drugs because it'll, it'll put too much strain on your uterus. Um, they can do a low dose of Pitocin. A lot of doctors don't like doing it, but they can. Okay. And so my hospital was very VBAC friendly. They did that. So I stalled out, got the Pitocin, and at that point, we tried like me being on hands and knees on the bed because, again, having the doula, she knew that there were there's a lot of positions you can get on and be creative while still being on the epidural. So they had me get on my hands and knees on a pillow on the bed. Try that. The baby was a little bit posterior. Oh, okay. And that's why I was having the back labor. So yeah. we were trying to to get the baby to turn, maybe see if he'll drop a little bit. They tried breaking my waters because they still hadn't broken at that point. With all the the turning and the moving, and at one point they had the bed tilted up and I was sitting kind of throne-like to try and let gravity work, I got to nine and a half centimeters. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So at that point, we were starting to see some signs that he was taking the same road as my first son. They found meconium. In, in the water when they broke it. And then his heart rate started dropping just like my first. Yeah. Um, and again, like the difference between having care providers where you're a number and care providers where they actually care about you. I had never met the midwife who was in the room with me at that time before in my life, before it was her shift and she came on. And I had a moment where I kind of burst into tears and, you know, I, I could see the parallels and that we were going down that road again. Yeah. And she kind of gave me a moment and she's like, you did amazing. You know, your body did everything it was supposed to. It's okay to cry, but you did great mom. Like she honored all the baggage I brought into that room and she had never met me before. And it was really cool. Yeah. And I wrote her a thank you note. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. You're making me cry. (laughs) It's, um, it's really doesn't take a whole lot, does it? To completely transform someone's experience is just being, being there. Two for seconds somebody. giving me a minute to cry. That was it. Wow. Yeah. Thank God for her. That's awesome. Yeah. So you felt a little crushed and then, yeah. then you were like, okay, let's do the C-section. And then how did that go? They actually gave me a chance to push first. Okay. Even I was like nine and three quarters. There was a little cervical lip, but the doctor on call, again, I could tell they were so VBAC supportive and they wanted to help me avoid a surgery. He said, baby was doing fine enough. Let's give it a try. 
you know, and, and the midwife was going to try and hold the cervix back a little bit, see if it could stretch enough to let him out. So they let me push. And, and again, just getting that whole experience, even though it ended in a C-section, I was given every chance for success. So I felt a whole lot better, you know, having it end that way. Yeah. You felt probably more empowered that you really Mm -hmm. did everything and you were informed along each step. Yeah. That's really incredible. I felt lucky. By sharing your story. I mean, anyone listening to this that might Mm -hmm. have to like enter into a situation that you had to, hopefully they'll feel a little more empowered to um, make sure their their needs are met. I hope a lot of women are open to the idea at least of if you have to think outside the box and maybe see one person for prenatal care and then just, you know, check yourself into the hospital or or switch providers, like don't settle, find something that's really going to work for you and get you the care that you need. Right. Right. I mean, it's true. Like most of us think like, Oh, just choose one and go with it the whole time. And you don't realize that you do have options. You can Mm -hmm. change your care provider and you should feel comfortable because this is a big deal. This is, you know, not your everyday medical thing. This is a big deal. That's really, really, really good advice. So, well, I'm, I am curious how the postpartum recovery was. Did you feel like there was anything else that you did the second time around with recovery that you would recommend or advise anyone to take care of themselves postpartum? So the, the resting, the asking for what you need, definitely. I think those are the biggest things. Like, I, I feel like we're so afraid sometimes as moms and as women to not just sit there and go, okay, right now I need somebody else to make me dinner. Right. Or, you know, today I need somebody to bring me a cup of coffee and listen to me. Right. And then the being aware of your mental health. Like I felt like between the doulas and my family, I had a really good support system. I did get on meds before I left the hospital this time. And I feel like that made all the difference in the world. Good. And I recognized a couple of bad days here and there. Like it took effort at first for me to bond with him because he was kind of a, a little bit of a fussy baby at first and he, he spit up a lot. But I was so much more aware of it and able to deal with it this time mm. because I, I, I was aware of, hey, I need to be on top of my mental health and bathing <laughs> and just taking time each day to like take care of yourself. Right. You know? Right. It's, it's usually, you know, the first thing that goes out the window is the mom taking care of themselves yeah. when there's a whole bunch of other people to take care of, especially you had a toddler. Yeah. So you have to learn how to juggle all that. My goodness. Get, get help with the toddler. We made yeah. sure we had uh play dates and grandparents and lots of people to help out with him. Good, good, good. Something I like to ask every mom is because so much changes, you know, after you have a baby, but especially your relationship with your body. And I'm wondering how has motherhood and, and having had the experience of giving birth changed the relationship that you have with your body, if at all? Yeah, it, it's a mixed bag. Um, and I was thinking about this the other day because I, I nursed both kids and I had to pump a lot with both kids, unfortunately. And I have no shame or had no shame when I was pumping, completely busting out the pump and breaking it up and, and pumping you know, wherever. I didn't mind nursing my kid in public. I I would, I remember pumping at my cousin's wedding and they tried to kick me out of the bridal suite where I was pumping. And I said, you can come in and clean around me. I'm sitting here with my pump. And like, I had no shame as far as that's concerned. But then obviously like 
the way your clothes fit again and, and things like that. You know, it takes some getting used to. And at least the first time around with the C-section, I wasn't aware of how much and how long you stay kind of swollen, mm. you know, from all the fluids they give you. And then from having the surgery and being swollen from the surgery. So it, it surprised me how long it took just to even be able to be comfortable wearing pants again. Mm. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, I I was swollen just from being on Pitocin for so long with mm-hmm. mine, and I didn't know that was a thing. It, it lasted longer than I thought. Yeah. So the second time around, you felt like you were a little more... Did you do feel like you gave yourself a little more grace or was it... I think I was just more prepared for those physical mm-hmm. changes the second time mm-hmm. around and you know, more aware of, okay, I need to make sure I have comfortable underwear for the first couple of months. And wear skirts or wear sweatpants yeah. and be okay with that. And both times though, I think I, I think I wore my maternity pants for a good nine months after giving birth just because they felt more comfortable. Right. Right. Um, are you comfortable talking a little bit about, you know, having sex after having a baby? I haven't had a C-section. So I'm wondering what the journey of like having sex after a C-section for the first time what was that like? Yeah. I, I don't remember how long it took, but I, I know it takes a long time. Yeah. Because for a long time after my first C-section, I'd never had major surgery before. So I was I was kind of afraid I'd re-break myself, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Like just almost like I was afraid if I moved too hard or you know put on pants that were too tight, it would all just break open again. Mm. I didn't trust my body that it was healing itself. Right. And, and so, you know, obviously sex is very physical too. So I think for a long time, I was just afraid to go there. Right. And then I remember even when we started to try going down that road again, both times, emotionally, I didn't feel ready for it even, you know, I, I wanted to try cause you know, you want to yeah. bond with your partner, but we'd try sometimes and I'd just look at him, you know, during foreplay or something and go, I, I can't, can't do it. I yeah. just can't. And Luckily, I have a very good partner who's understanding. Yeah, but that's good. I know that hurts them a little bit too. Like just talking from the emotional aspect, I know it probably kills them a little bit that they something that's supposed to be so intimate that you're just not ready to be there. Right, right. And I mean, I know that for a lot of partners, they want to do it because they want to maybe show you that they're still attracted to you and that they mm. still like you know love you, and it can be a huge strain. Yeah, but I just like to talk about it because people don't. There's a lot of newness that happens. So just giving yourself grace to get to it when you get to it. Well, just to wrap up, is there any other thing that you can think of that might be, you know, that we didn't cover or a piece of advice that you would give to anyone listening to help them on their own journey as they're starting out, you know, getting ready and preparing to give birth and become a mom? Yeah. You know, the big thing just to reiterate again is, you know, being an advocate. And if something's not working, seek it out, ask for help. If somebody is listening to this and is interested in in VBAC or even just more support for their C-section, there's a great organization called ICANN. Oh, great. I-C-A-N. It's the International Caesarean Awareness Network. And one of their goals is to prevent first-time C-sections, but then also to help moms who need information for VBACs or who want to plan a more family-friendly or comfortable second C-section. So I've met some great women through there and you can even go after you've given birth and kind of share your story or talk through it. So that's been a great resource. That's awesome. I'm going to link that in the show notes. Mm -hmm. I'll make sure that it make an easy link for everyone to find that. 
I'm excited yeah. to look up that organization because, wow, I, yeah, I've never wonderful. heard of it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. You know, that's one of the things like you start talking and then you learn about these things and you go, I never knew that. And now yeah. everybody knows. So that's awesome. Thank you so much. I You're feel welcome. so honored that, that you took the time to share your personal story with me. And, you know, you did good, mama. You really, that's, that's impressive. Like how you've been through a lot and I hope you're proud of yourself and also proud of yourself for being vulnerable today because, you know, it's hard to get there, but, um, I really appreciate you. To help other moms. Yeah. You know, if if somebody listening takes something away from this, then. Yeah, exactly. That's why we do it. Well, I'm very grateful for you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you too. Thank you so, so much for joining us for season two. This is going to be a great season. I have tons of really exciting conversations coming to you. So make sure you subscribe right now, which by the way, subscribing is the best way you can support this show and also rating and reviewing. It's those three things are the ultimate best way you can show me some love and give back to me because I'm not doing this show for money. If I was, I I wouldn't, I wouldn't be doing it anymore. I'm doing it as a labor of love and as a gift to other new moms to be and parents to be everywhere who are curious about what the real experience is that nobody is really telling them. Even for all you new moms who already had your babies, who are now looking to see what is normal and if your experience might be in alignment with other people, because people don't talk about all this stuff. So thank you so much for rating and subscribing and reviewing because it really helps this content reach more people and help more people feel less alone. Another way you can support the show is to share with your friends, share on your social media feed, follow us on Instagram at birth show and, you know, go on our website and check out all the resources. If you buy anything on the website, completely non-sponsored, just vetted products that really helped me and other moms I know in our own journeys into, into motherhood through a pregnancy, through a birth experience and in postpartum, all of those items, we get a little kickback. It just helps keep the site online and it helps us keep paying the fees that make this show possible. So that's another great way you can support us. And the website is birthshow.com. All these links are in the show notes, by the way. And also I put a link to the International Cesarean Awareness Network, which we mentioned in the show. It's a great, great resource to learn more about cesarean sections and also about VBACs if you're thinking about having a vaginal birth after having a cesarean and you want to get more info there, check out that link. Just swipe up while you're listening to the episode and it's right down there. Well, look at you. You made it to the very, very end of this very long episode. And I know it's really hard to make it all the way to the end of a long podcast episode. And most people check out by now. So for the few of you that are still listening, I'm going to just give you a little uh, personal anecdote, a little secret, just a little uh, nugget of information for you as a thank you for sticking it out to the end. Here it is. When I was a little, little girl, I had a baby doll. I'm the third born of, there's four girls in my family and one boy. So I'm the middle child. But as a young child, my baby doll, I decided was a boy baby. And I named him Caleb. And for the majority of my childhood, I believed that one day I would have a boy and his name would be Caleb. Well, I did end up having a boy baby. 
but his name's not Caleb. It's Dashiell. But my whole uh, childhood, that was my plan. So there you go. That's a little secret about me, a little anecdote. And thanks for making it to the end. I appreciate you guys. I really look forward to being with you next week. I'm Christy Williams, and you've been listening to Birth. This is a Sync Studios production.